Hello, and welcome back to Moral of the Story podcast. As always, I'm your host, Caitlin Vagadis. Uh, I just got back from Fort Myers Beach, so I'm a little behind on some of those recording and the releasing, so I apologize for that. I just got out of school, and then I went straight to vacation, and then I'm going to have to start work on Monday. So I'm a little all over the place, but I should be able to get th- most of the stuff sorted out before this episode is released. So I would just like to thank you for your patience for dealing with some of my delays since I've been so busy lately. If you don't know already, this episode does deal with the topic of suicide. And so suicide can be a really rough subject, especially if you know someone who committed suicide or if you have thoughts of suicide yourself. And so I would just like to remind you that if you find this subject extremely difficult, you don't have to listen to this episode. I'm not going to be offended. And if you do, I highly encourage listening with someone beside you that you can talk about it afterwards. I also encourage that you seek professional help if you have thoughts of suicide. The suicide hotline, the number I have it written down. Just give me one second. Uh, I highly encourage getting professional help rather than just simply doing the suicide hotline, which the number is 800-273-8255. In this episode, I will be talking a little bit about the signs of suicide, how to seek help, and why people become suicidal. And it is, people always consider it to be a selfish act. That's not in, not necessarily a case. It's a symptom of depression, and it's a severe cause of symptom of depression that either went untreated or just went so far past that past the point that you can handle it anymore. And so, with that being said, I think we can begin to dive into the story. I do have to uh, mention the story is very long today. I wanted to be able to end on a happier note since this is such a heavy subject. So you might need to pause this episode just to get through the whole thing. It's going to be, I would imagine, around an hour. I can recall in painful detail the moment I broke on May 6th at the county track meet. I just witnessed my sister clear the eight-foot pole vault bar when I had only cleared seven foot, meaning I just lost my spot on varsity in my final meet. It was the last thing I was riding on that could prove that there was any part of me that was even slightly enough, and I had just lost that now too. It was already over for me, and in that moment, I was already dead. Without having any control over my mind and body, I began crying and I fought so hard to maintain my composure and failed miserably. On the way out of the gate to the pole vault pit, I passed Georgia's sister, who was warming up for her first attempt at eight foot. The previous year, she had broke her school record, but I remember she mentioned earlier that she too was hitting a bit of a dry spell. So I choked down the tears long enough to say hello, although a drop or two still managed to find their way down my cheek, and I wished her luck before she would walk up to the runway. After only taking one or two steps past her, the tears broke through rapidly, running down my face. Only a small distance behind her, perhaps only five to ten feet, was George, leaning against the fence, 
and he began engaging in a conversation with his other teammates after looking in my direction. In that brief moment, I was actually thankful he refused to look at me. And although there was a chance he didn't even realize I was there, I was just glad he didn't see the tears and the defeat I wore in such a raw and exposed way. And yet it was still so humiliating to know that he was there in that moment. It was even more humiliating knowing how well he did in pole vault and to have him there while I struggled endlessly with the event, defeated by my sister and walking away in tears, broken in ways no one seemed to even begin to understand. I walked back to the athletic complex to grab my track bag since I knew there was no possibility I could get myself to stay for the rest of the meet. And it was a rescheduled Saturday meet, so I knew the coach would allow me to leave early. I told the head coach I was going home, and I remember thinking of how great of a coach he was, and the guilt weighed so heavy of being such a disappointment in not only my event, but in my failure to be mentally strong enough to continue. Sarah was waiting on me after she saw me walk past her, and she accompanied me as I walked back to my car in the gravel lot. She asked what was wrong, and I explained that I just lost my spot on varsity. She tried to be supportive, and although she never realized it, I appreciate the effort that she was putting in to make me feel better. Through all the drama in our friends group, she never treated me any different, even though all of the friends she was the closest to despised me at this point. Upon reaching my car, she turned to me and put a hand on my shoulder, and she tried to look me in the eye, although I turned away. And she said, Hey, you did good. At this point, I started to feel the self-hatred boil inside of me, and it accumulated in my throat to the point that I felt like I was choking. Although immediately regretting what I said, for she was only trying to help, I whispered to myself, not meaning to say it out loud, not good enough. What I regretted the most about those words was how much I truly meant it. I got into my car and Sarah walked away, almost looking afraid of what my next move might be. And I believe she genuinely felt concerned for me. I sat there in the car, trying to get catch my breath. Then when I went to go turn the car on, I realized that in horror that Lily had the keys in her track bag, all the way over by the pole vault pit. On my way back, I was struggling to breathe after fighting far too long and too hard to fight all the thoughts and emotions and trying to choke them down. I passed Katie near the shot put pit and she asked if I was okay. I explained that I just lost my spot and I forgot my keys were with my sister. I told her I didn't want to go back. She embraced me and told me not to worry about the keys, that she would get them for me and she walked away and came back with the keys and hugged me one last time. I remember thinking, this is the last time Katie will see me alive. And that was the type of thought that I carried back with me as I walked back to my car in the stadium parking lot. We always talk about how you never expect the last time that you see someone to be the last time. It is a perspective I would not wish upon my worst enemy, to look at your teammates, coaches, and friends, and know that it is the last time that I will see them and they will see me. Little do they know that seeing me, politely not acknowledging the tears rolling down my face, would be the last glance they ever have of me. And I felt so guilty for the hurt that this would bring them later. At that moment, so broken, the world around you changes. You see, but you do not register the sight. You move and you walk, but do not comprehend your motions, like you are no longer in your body. Suddenly the world feels so objective, so meaningless and miles away from you. People always say that you feel numb or nothing at all. But for me, that was not exactly the case. My thoughts were running so fast, 
I hurt so terribly much. Every mistake, every rejection, insult, or the whispers they thought I could not hear throughout the years came flooding to my mind so quickly prior to that moment. It was impossible to think through them all or even acknowledge the existence of some of the intrusive thoughts. Then my mind became so overloaded I could no longer process at all, and I crashed, felt numb, not because I felt nothing, but because I felt too much. My heart turned to stone and weighed heavy in my chest. Every limb of my body felt ten times heavier. It was as if I could feel the true weight of the air above me, a fifteen-pound weight bearing down on each square inch of my shoulders. Your brain and your heart turn off and go into autopilot, and you walk as a ghost in your own body. I got in my car and drove down 219, wondering how fast I needed to go to make a collision with a pole or guardrail fatal, but still appear as an accident. I eyed each pole as I drove down the road, just trying to accept what I was about to do and muster the strength to go through with it. Then a voice entered into my head. It was hardly a voice, but a moment of understanding. Yet the thought was not entirely my own. Suddenly I wasn't in my car anymore. The voice or the thought had one question. Why did you do it? But it felt as if I was facing my own judgment. As if after my death, I had to answer one single question. Immediately my thoughts raced for an answer, but knowing who I was responding to, none of the answers seemed good enough. So every time a thought appeared into my head, it was gone. And within what felt like a fraction of a second, my mind was entirely blank. I felt that none of the reasons as to why I chose to take my own life were good enough to repute the reasons God put me on this earth. All the reasons suddenly felt so small, and that's the only way I can describe it. I could not tell God that he had made a mistake, that I had the authority to choose between life and death. For the first time, I considered perhaps I had a reason to live, that there was a future. But that didn't entirely make me feel at peace. It was almost frustrating because I was lost as to what to do. I was tired of the pain and I knew it would not stop, but I realized then that death was not the answer. It was a seven minute drive from the stadium to my house, the first road leading out of town being 219. I remember only making it halfway down that road. I recall pulling into my parking spot in our driveway and making it down into the basement to take a nap. I was in a daze and still crying by the time I lay down in the basement. I was lying there, almost frustrated with the fact that I could no longer go through with the attempt, and I was so stressed with trying to contemplate how to move forward from there. I couldn't go to counseling without having to tell my parents, and I felt that my friends were in no position to let me back in the friends group, and they still tied my name to all the gossip and backstabbing that was being spread. George, who was just recently the only friend I had left, would not talk to me. I felt as if I lost everyone. I felt so alone and hopeless. That is when the serenity prayer, a prayer I hadn't heard in years, popped into my mind while I was lying on the couch and staring at the ceiling with tears in my eyes. For those unfamiliar with the prayer, it goes like this. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Then to calm my nerves, I would think of all the problems overwhelming me and one by one break them into parts that I could put into two categories, what I could control and what I could not. I could forgive my friends for the wrong they had done against me, but I could not force them to forgive me. I would try to I would try reconnecting with people I was acquainted with during the summer, 
I would go th on through that summer, volunteering to drive to parties. That way I could get out of the house on the weekends. I could attend the next track meet to support my sister, for I had a week to come to terms with the outcomes of the past meet before having to watch her at the MAC track meet. It was not long until I fell asleep on the couch. I want to make one thing clear. Although I decided not to go through with crashing my car that day, I was not feeling any better. I knew in those moments that something had to change, especially my mindset. Nothing was easier immediately. I would wake up crying and go to bed crying for nearly a month and a half. My dad came down into the basement and saw me crying and asked if I wanted to help him put up drywall. He had never acknowledged the tears and I'm glad he did not. I was not ready to talk. I woke up a second time later that day to my mom coming down into the basement and chewing me out for leaving the meet early instead of supporting my sister. Something about being rude and self-absorbed and that Lily deserved the spot more than me because she worked for it, as if implying that I had not put an ounce of effort into the practices. The same talk she had given me nearly every time I came home from a bad practice, crying, frustrated, and scared. It was typical of her to assume that I am a terrible person without attempting to understand why those things were upsetting me. I remember only half listening, almost laughing at the inappropriate timing of the lecture. And I was thinking about how I had just nearly taken my life and she had no idea. And I wasn't mad at her. Mad isn't the correct word. I just remember thinking, you don't know what you are doing. And almost feeling sorry for her in the same sense that I felt sorry for all the people I passed while I was crying during that meet and all the people that were entirely unaware of what I was about to do. They say suicide is selfish, but you do consider other people. I felt so much grief on their behalf. I pitied the people who hurt me because I knew their regret would haunt them, and I did not want it to. I sympathized with those who would blame themselves for not taking the opportunity to listen to me or help or thought that they could have changed the outcome of my demise. I thought about them. I cared about what this would do to them, but the pain was so far beyond that, and I did not believe they truly cared that the grief would pass. They say those who commit suicide are cowards, but those who throw around that accusation do not realize the strength that it takes to hold on that long without snapping. How scary do you think life has to become for the alternative to become the much more appealing option? I text George later that night before I went out with a few friends at La Coretta, and I text him about what I had went through after that meet and how I was going to do it and stage it as an accident with my car. For once, he didn't leave me on red, but he practically only responded to simply say, yeah, don't do that, and that life can get rough. Very few words, and I remember feeling disappointed. I had hoped to start a conversation. At one point, he asked if I was okay, and I said I was fine. An obvious lie. How could I be fine just hours after remitting, I nearly ended it all. But he said nothing else. I should have said no, but I was hoping that he would call me out for not being fine like he always did. I was hoping for questions to check up on me, such as what's going on, what makes you feel that way, or would you like company, or even is there any way that I could help. But he did not want to talk, and sometimes no response is the response that speaks the loudest. I fear he did not, I fear he thought I was just asking for attention because he just ended things and I was struggling to accept it. And perhaps part of that was true. But there was very few people I could talk to at that point 
that would not spread the news to everyone else. But while we were at Lacaretta, I tried again and told Sarah and Jeremy about it and they had the same short responses and looked at me confused like they did not know what to say and that it was a strange thing to bring up to anyone. But I still felt that their re reactions in Georgia's would tear them apart if I ever went through with it in the future or even if I was involved in an accident. Any collision that I would be involved in at this point forward would always come back to those three and make them wonder whether it was intentional or if there was anything they could have done that could have played a part in preventing it. A week or so later, I found myself in the basement alone once more, the place I always went to be alone with my thoughts. I tried to distract myself with a movie on the projector as I read through the group chat. Our friends were going to Galen's and Gara was driving and offered our friends a ride out to his house. I requested for her to pick me up, and she said no. She offered no explanation other than that she was already at his house, but a part of me didn't believe that was the whole truth. She spent her time studying what everyone else was saying about each other, and took the opinions of what was most popular and acted accordingly. I had concluded that she did, would not pick me up solely because I was unwanted. However, I was trying to remain positive, as I had promised myself, and I would try to do that from that moment forward. Unfortunately, nearly two or three hours later, one of our friends asked if someone would drive them back out, drive all the way back into town to pick him up, and Gara immediately accepted their, his request and came to get him. That's when I felt all my fears had been confirmed. I was unwanted. From that night forward, the group chat went mostly silent. I had realized that meant that they had made a new group chat that night. I could picture in my head them talking about it that night at Galen's, them coming to the census to abandon me for good. I don't know how much I cried that night and every weekend afterwards as I grappled with the utter rejection and the pain of losing all my friends. However, I do know that despite the treatment they gave to me and that it was an action I was anticipating for months, I was still devastated because although I felt so miserable around them, they were the closest thing to friends I had, and now I didn't even have that. The summer began, and I did not go out much. I never saw my friends unless they needed a place to go, and one of them would hit me up and pretend they did not make a new group chat, and like nothing happened at all. They used me for my place, and I allowed it, because I was using them to have a drink. A month or so into the summer, I text Tony to apologize and make amends for the wrong that I had done to him and our friends and the drama I created. I knew that I could forgive them, but could not control whether they chose to reciprocate. I wanted closure, but in no way wanted back in the group. I knew they were using me, and nothing I said was going to change that. At first, Tony was listening and understanding, but that was short-lived. I tried to explain the way that I was feeling while I was shutting them out, and I said I understood why they left me up to dry, and that I was also withdrawing from everyone at the time. In hindsight, that was, that was a result of the depression I was experiencing. That is when Tony got angry, and I took note in a journal of a few of the texts that followed. You're the backbone to every problem. You're so unreasonable all the time, and always attack everyone, especially me, because you've always had a grudge against me. Everything has been just so peaceful since you left. Literally anything that happened, you usually caused. At one point, I explained. I wouldn't have left if I felt welcome, 
I spent the last few weekends before I withdrew from the group crying because of the way I was treated. To which he responded, Do you ever think of why we treated you like that? And then he said, Everyone mostly hates you. And I only know you're being nice because you went back in. That is what I think. I don't know why, because if you came back, I would never talk to you either way. It was 1 or 2 a.m. at this point, and I considered hopping back into the car, but I knew that there was no way my family would think it was an accident if I left the house at this point in the night. That is when I realized that the grave thoughts still lingered in my mind. So instead, I stopped talking to Tony and switched the conversation to Jeremy, a friend that I still trusted, and made a small request. I gave him George's contact, with the instruction that if I ever got into an accident, whether it was a true accident or not, that he would text George and let him know that it was not because of him or in that nothing he could have said on May 6th would have changed a thing. That is when Jeremy started to worry and asked all the, nearly all the questions I hoped to hear from George, but I ignored them because I was dazed. I just made sure that he promised and went to bed trying my best not to internalize all the things that Tony had said and failing terribly. I felt as if I was losing all the progress I was making. The following day, I got a text from an old friend. I had assumed that Tony had texted her about what I had said to him yesterday and came to back him up and tell me off. That was the usual, that was the usual routine. So I ignored the message for several hours before I finally caved and opened the message. It read, To be honest, 4-H camp was kind of nice actually getting to talk to you and get along. For once we had a few conversations and I felt like we were actually at a good point. I don't know if you still have anything against me or don't like me anymore, but honestly, I don't have a problem with you. I don't have a reason to be mad at you anymore or any grudge that I should hold against you. We both had made mistakes and made up for them. I hope I am on your good side now. If there's anything wrong that I've done or anything we need to talk about, let me know because I want to be able to talk like that again. She followed up with, I hope we can still do some things together. If it is not for a few weeks or months or whenever, I hope we can still be friends. Let, you, let me know if you need to talk, because that's obviously what we need to do, is talk about, talk this all out if we ever want this to work. Both messages filled me with such relief, because it was proof that Tony was not telling the whole truth, sharing his own opinions and claiming it was the opinions of the entire group, the, ty the type of manipulation I s typically saw from him. And for the first time in a while, I had hoped that things would get better. Not only that, but she offered me the time to adjust and work things through. When I asked Tony the night before that I would need time before I could be friends with the whole group again, and that I thought space would be the best option for the moment, he blew me off with a belittling whatever. Furthermore, within less than, less than a week after the argument, I got another message from a friend. Mackenzie, who I hadn't really connected with in the past year or so after we lost touch and our friends had became clicky. There was no reason why she would be even thinking of me at that moment, but she texted me anyways. She explained that she had just attended Steubenville Catholic Retreat and when she was at Adoration, she suddenly thought of me and told me that she felt that she wanted me to look up the following Bible verses because she felt like they could help me a lot. These verses were Psalms chapter 41, verses 9 through 13. Even my close friends, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, 
had turned against me. But may you have mercy on me, Lord. Raise me up so that I may repay them. I know that you are pleased with me, for my enemy does not triumph over me. Because of my integrity, you uphold me and set me in your presence. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Luke chapter 17, verses 3 through 4. So watch yourself. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times they come back and say, I repent, you must forgive them. Romans chapter 12, verses 14, 17, 19, and 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Repay no evil with evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of it all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The second book of Timothy, chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me so that the message may be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me to safety in his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And lastly, John chapter 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When I asked Kenzie how she knew what was happening in my life right now, she had no idea what I was saying. In fact, she had to look up the verses in that moment before even sending them to me. I was shocked because every line felt as if they were being directly spoken to me. Every argument with my friends, the falling out with George, the feeling of final judgment on that car ride home, to the serenity prayer, to the lack of response from my, to my cries for help, and the forgiveness I was willing to give my friends, and the forgiveness many of them had shown me. I was fortunate, and for once, life was beginning to feel possible. Thank you for listening throughout that whole thing. I know it can get a little heavy at times, but I did want to end on a little more of a positive note. So thought that was going to be a good spot to end things. But for this next part in the reflection, I do want to begin with talking about some of the stigmas that are related to suicide because there is a lot because it's can feel really misunderstood. And if they feel misunderstood, that can lead to later attempts. And so... I wanted just to get some of the suicide stigmas out of the way. And I think a lot of these are more of that perceived social stigmas where many people don't actually believe this. But when you are suffering from it, you believe they think it. And so you'll eat yourself apart for like, oh, this is what people will think. And I know like I didn't talk to any of my friends, like my close friends, about wanting to end it but I would text people that I wasn't as close to 
Because I was afraid that if they found out, since we were, like, backstabbing each other so much, I was like, oh, they're going to make fun of me for being a coward or, like, dramatic or just seeking attention. And that's not really the case. And I think, like, when they say, like, oh, you're just seeking attention, in a way, yeah, but it's not just to, like, oh, I'm fine, just look at me. It's You're getting that attention because you need to address the issues and talk about it and kind of like work through it. So it's not attention in that negative connotation. It's seeking help, not seeking attention. But the first one I wanted to start with is the stigma that being suicidal is the easy way out and makes you weak. I think the easiest way to explain the thought process that is involved with being suicidal, a lot of times we talk about mental illness being just as important as physical illness. So I think the analogy that I'm going to use for this is like weightlifting. So if you're weightlifting, training makes you stronger, but doing too much weight all at once or lifting too much and too often can lead to overtraining and injury. Symptoms of overtraining in a physical sense would be fatigue, lower immune system function, irritability, decline in performance, soreness, pain, loss of appetite, irritability, and the workouts become more challenging, uh, disturbed sleep, and loss of motivation. Which oddly, most, I would say 75% of those are also the symptoms of depression. So when your body's too worn out, you're going to have, even in a mental or physical sense, it's going to have a lower function. Likewise, being constantly stressed and having all these challenges and trying to compete against depression can lead to kind of that overtraining in a sense where each stressor afterwards is actually harder and you're not getting stronger. You're just wearing yourself out and become it just becomes more difficult because in like weight training, if you overtrain, you will be lifting less weights over time because your body's just not recovering from it. And so in a mental sense, if you're not allowing yourself to recover or you have something that's hurting your ability to recover, such as having a condition like depression or anxiety, you're going to, it's going to get more and more difficult for you. And eventually someone who is carrying that weight and pushing themselves even farther would become injured or they can collapse. And in the same sense, the collapse for a mental condition. And it can be like suicidal thoughts, thoughts of death or actions, but the collapse would be extremely painful. And when they cannot physically stand or continue, that suicide is like that collapse. It is not an easy way out or a weakness, but a result of excessive strain. Likewise, the, the collapse isn't always seen as an action the person wanted to take. They can try to resist it, although the effects of depression can take over, just like the effects of overtraining can take over and become unbearable. This is why so many people who commit suicide don't want to die. Therefore, suicide can't be a selfish act or considering their death because the collapse was not an action that they wanted. The second stigma that I wanted to address is suicide is painless. Many of the attempts or 
ways that people try to commit suicide are actually extremely painful. For example, drowning, hanging, car accidents, cutting, even overdosing. Overdosing people think it's just like this slow release and painless, but sometimes it just, it stops your body from its physical function. So it can be in extreme pain, but they aren't able to move or do anything about it. And so like there's this fictional representation that they often like leave out in movies and TV shows which is they leave out this reality of pain. It just looks like people just drift off and that's not always the that's not always the reality of it. So saying that it's painless or an easy way out is not true at all. And there's a the next one it's not really a stigma but it is a saying that people often try to they, they think it's an encouraging thing but it's really kind of difficult to hear if you are suicidal which is what doesn't kill you make you makes you stronger someone who's uh suffers from a physical injury or is at risk is always at risk of becoming injured a second time and in a, the same sense someone who is suicidal or had an, a, an attempt at suicide is l more likely to attempt a second time or have that injury a second time. Furthermore, emotional tra uh, traumas such as abuse, bullying, traumatic events can alter the way the brain functions and can damage the way people, that person handles friendships, relationships, and their self-image in the future. I know some, the signs of anxiety and friendships is they'll self-sabotage uh, friendships because they'll like talk behind each other's backs are so paranoid of what those other people are saying about them. So as a defensive mechanism, they'll start talking behind other people's backs because if they're expecting all their friends to leave, they rather just in a subconscious sense, just get it over with and just have them leave right off the bat so that they're prepared for it. And so they can do a lot of self-sabotaging or they can get like really paranoid in relationships. And so it doesn't really make them stronger. It can also really damage the way they handle things in the future. However, much like physical injuries, therapy can be used to rehabilitate past injuries and help people suffering from mental, mental illness function and cope with the stress and emotional injuries. It doesn't necessarily mean that it'll be 100% effective, but it's definitely way more beneficial to have those therapies and those medications to combat it from getting extremely bad a second time. Uh, the next stigma is that suicide runs in the family. Depression can run in the family. Suicide does not. Uh, the stigma started because people who are dealing with a loss of a loved one that recently passed due to suicide can be an extremely traumatic event because there's all that regret, that grief, and so that emotional strain is enough to cause another suicide or a severe enough depression that would lead to that. It's not a hereditary thing. It's just an emotional trauma response. And it can also be a result of a shared environment. If they were raised in the same environment, they might lead to that final symptom. Suicide attempts and thoughts... Uh, don't have to be a result of depression or mental illness either. 
but as a traumatic event such as a family or friend that recently died or even breakups or straining enough to cause someone to consider taking their life. Someone always uh, says that, oh, this person after they broke up claimed they were suicidal and they're just being dramatic. And really that's, that is enough to lead someone to the edge. The next stigma I did talk about a little bit before, someone that survives an attempt will never attempt a second time. That is not true. M many of the people who attempt once will try again, and it is a sign of and an indicator of further attempts. A sudden mental state improvement after an attempt does not indicate that the threat is over either. I was doing actually really well for probably two day, two or three days, about a week after the attempt, where I was just I had a, such a high in the like mental state, but that threat of possibly taking my life a second time did not go away because it actually like popped up a second time about two months later. There's another idea that people have that suicide cannot be prevented. And it saying that it can always be prevented is also not true either. Some people, despite medications and treatment, will there's nothing that you could have done more to stop uh, the attempts, but, but saying that it cannot be prevented is not true either because people who suffer from depression have a distorted perception of the, their situations. What solute, like there are solutions that can kind of help redirect what they're thinking and how they're perceiving the realities. So self-direction and management skills can be taught through therapy and support and all people have who have interactions with those who are considering suicide have an impact on their emotional state and can help, not just licensed professionals. So if you're thinking, oh, I'm not qualified to help this friend, like, yes, they might have better outreach programs or they're, they're trained professionals in helping people with suicide, but that doesn't mean you can't do anything. Just being that support system can go a really long way. Half of those who attempted suicide have seeked support prior to the attempt, which kind of goes back to the, can be prevented, but half of the people that did attempt didn't even seek help. And a lot more people who have seeked help have recovered or never made an attempt. And uh, young people rarely, rarely resent someone for trying to help, although it is likely that they will resist help at first and are likely to ask for help non-verbally, while adults are more likely to seek a medical assistant, which I can confirm that. I know I was I was really resistant to help, but I was still seeking it in non-verbal ways or kind of verbal, but not if I didn't get the help that I wanted right off the bat, I would just let it go. I didn't push to get more help, but once I got older in college, I started seeking uh, medical assistance instead of just keeping it to myself the whole time. That kind of goes to the next one where they say young adults do not experience, experience as much mental health issues as adults. Depression is prevalent in teens as well as children as young as six to eight years old. We lack an understanding of youth suicide because for the longest time they didn't think that these young adults or these children could experience such severe symptoms of depression, but all because their situations in life are different, those issues can still be or still feel just as large as they do when you're an adult. Lastly, I want to just say like most suicides 
do have warning signs but often go undetected. Many of these signs go undetected because they are spread out across several people. And so I think I want to just go over the warning signs where if someone's displaying any of these signs, I highly encourage that you try to talk to them, ask questions, start a conversation, and try to be that support system for them. Because even if they're not suicidal, but if they have any of these signs, they're probably not in the best position mentally and probably still need that support regardless. The first sign is they have a recent death of a loved one, previous attempts, or thoughts related to death. Previous attempts and thoughts related to death you'd think are more noticeable than they are, but a lot of people keep that quiet or on the down low. But even if you're not super close to someone checking in on them, is still appreciated and they do recognize the support you're trying to give them. Recent death of a loved one is also extremely emotional, emotionally straining. So just to check up and ask them how they're doing is just a really great, even like you don't have to have a full blown conversation, but just like a small gesture to like let them know that they can go to you if they need help is just a great way of like helping them. Um, they have signs of, or have been diagnosed with depression, mood disorders, or anxiety, which can be a little difficult to like deal with on everyday changes. But then uh, major life adjustments, say they just moved houses, moved schools, uh, graduations, or they just started like new jobs. All of those are like major adjustments that can be really difficult and can be a heavy load to be dealing with and then also be dealing with everything else in life as well. Um, they give away prized uh, possessions, make wills, or make plans for after their death. For example, and then the narrative, I text Jeremy asking if he could text George to let George know that it wasn't his fault, that he couldn't have done anything more if I were ever to get into a car accident, whether it be an accident or not. That would be a clear sign. I didn't give away prized possessions and obviously didn't make a will. I was 16. The making the wills is pretty common for people who are older or just like in, have that ability because it's it kind of goes in that sense that they don't want to die, but because they, and it's not a selfish thing because they're still thinking about what other people will do once they're gone. So they try to make plans to ease that load for other people. Also, I should make note, if someone gives you a note telling you not to open it until after they are gone, you should open it. The confidentiality should not be kept at the threat of harm or harm to themselves or others. That's something that I say in therapy, like they have to go through these like rules and expectations a little bit beforehand. And they say that confidentiality between the therapist and you is no longer applicable if there's a threat or a threat of harm to yourself or your you mentioned that you're thinking about hurting someone else. Another sign would be changes in sleep patterns, constant fatigue, or changes in appetite. A lot of people who have episodes of major depression, they stop going out as much or they don't take care of them as often. It can appear as laziness, but a lot of it is just, it took so much energy just to deal with the things that are going on in their head and the intrusive thoughts 
So they don't have the energy to do some of the physical functioning and self-care things that are necessary. It's kind of ironic because all the things that they say can help depression, like all the self-care things, are the things that depression keeps you from doing. And so just trying to brush someone off as like, oh, well, you could just think positive. You could do all these self-care things. It's not that easy. Like, yes, that could help, but you don't have the energy to be doing all of that. Social withdrawal is kind of a or the result of some of that fatigue. And also trying to, like, I know when you have, like, social anxiety, just trying to balance or, like, trying to block out the thoughts that, oh, like, people don't want me here or all the things that kind of get associated with that, you just don't want to face that. And so you just withdraw because you'd rather just be home alone, not worrying about that than going out. And it's just so exhausting to be out as well. Personality changes, nervousness, anger, impulsiveness, or recklessness, apathy about the appearance and their health, and their appearance or health, irritability, and crying. Many of those are not necessarily related, but those are also signs of worsening depression that could lead to suicide later. Later, Personality changes, I'm not 100% like... If they're usually really talkative and then suddenly they're quiet, that would be an example. Nervousness, like they feel, they seem kind of awkward to be in social situations when they weren't previously. That can be kind of a sign that they're just trying to battle all these thoughts that it can be like really difficult to be out in, in social events. Uh, anger, it like it takes a lot to be patient, a lot of energy, and if you don't have that, it can be really irritable. And also, you're just constantly feeling so upset with yourself that it just kind of comes out. And so that irritability also happens. Like, I, if you ever get really tired, like you didn't get much sleep the night before, most people get really irritable. So if they have that fatigue, that's kind of a sign. Uh, crying is off. Obviously, they're not doing too hot if they're crying at that moment. Apathy about about their appearance or health, I mentioned before. Uh, feelings of unworthiness or failures. So if they're talking about like, oh, I couldn't do this. I wasn't like I failed at doing that, and they're constantly settling on those thoughts. That's signs of like depression. Or that not, negative mindset that just makes them feel as if they shouldn't be, like they're just a nuisance to everyone, that they don't deserve to live. Uh, sudden lifts in spirits may point to the decision to end the pain. And so if they usually, for like months, have seemed really down. Suddenly they're really like upbeat and doing really well. That can kind of be a sign that they kind of hit that breaking point and just they're about to like end the pain. Um, other facts about suicide is adults are more likely to attempt in the winter while teens are more often to uh, attempt during the spring or the summer months. I'm not exactly for sure why that is, but I mean, I was a sophomore, so I was a teen and I tried to, I was going to do it in May. So that <laughs> I guess like it goes along with that. There is no link to suicide and socioeconomic status. So all because someone may have a lot of wealth or 
seems to be in a position that they should be doing really well doesn't mean that they're immune to having depression or anxiety. It doesn't, depression doesn't really care about that. It'll, it'll go for anyone. Uh, in 2018, there was 41,000 deaths, 1.3 million attempts, 2.7 million plans, and 9.3 million thoughts of suicide, which that would have to be the people that they would survey in order to find that out. And so it's probably much higher than that. Obviously, the deaths they would probably know and the attempts but the plans and thoughts of suicides are probably much higher than what those statistics say. If you're wanting to help someone, there are some things that people often say that they think is helpful and it's not. And so if you're like worried about that, I'll explain a few of them. But I got this from a website. I'm not really for sure which one it was now, but a lot of them, I don't know why you would say that say it anyways for example saying someone's trying to seek attention that's not helpful because they're trying to seek help not attention telling them that they're just being dramatic or they're just overreacting where you're you're thinking that's going to calm them down it's not it's just kind of guilt tripping them instead you're only saying this to make me feel bad people if they're bringing something up that you did and they're like this is how I was processing and I'm just having a really hard time with dealing it they're not trying to guilt trip you or get back at you they're trying to seek that help and try to improve things for the future or try to get things to work out so that in the future it doesn't happen a second time it's kind of like mentioned in an earlier episode how people personalize or internalize things people are saying when they're trying to reach help Telling someone that they're being selfish and they're only thinking about themselves. It, I mentioned that several times in this episode already. That's not the case. A lot of them don't want to be committing suicide. So it's not like it's something they're being selfish about. Suicide is the easy way out. I don't know why you would tell someone that. But I think I think I did get... I When I was reaching out to someone, they were just like, well, that's just like the easy way out and stuff like that. And I have had people tell me that before when I was reaching out. And it's not, it's not the easy way out because the situation is so difficult that holding on is so, so heavy. And I don't know if I can really like word this so much, but you have to be in such a bad position to not even want to face another day. It's not like an easy way out. In many ways, it feels as if it's the only way out because you can't carry on just carrying that weight around for such that long period of time. And people with depression often don't see, like can't picture the future getting better or can't picture a future at all. And so they think that it's gonna be something that won't pass, that it's gonna last their whole life. And that's not really the case, but that's what it feels like in that moment. Or telling people that they chose this. Uh, that's kind of with Tony when I was trying to reach out with him. And was like, well, I was withdrawing because I didn't feel welcome. And he was like, well, have you ever, like, you chose this and stuff. So I don't feel bad for you that you withdrew and then we left you out after that. A lot of those are symptoms and it's, they can't really help it. Or it's so difficult to be preventing it all the time. And all, honestly, when I would go out, it was just so much more exhausting. And I got treated even worse when I would go out. So it was like, there's no point in 
trying to reach out. And so the withdrawing wasn't something that I chose. It was kind of something that I was forced into as well. Telling someone to stop feeling sorry for themselves or that the situation isn't that bad, that they're overreacting. That's not a helpful thing to be mentioning or telling them that like, oh, you're not actually gonna do that because you're not in their headspace. You don't know whether or not they're gonna do that. And if they're reaching out, that's such a strong sign that they're thinking about doing it. And it's pretty likely that these people are going to try if they're already having those thoughts and they've been having them long enough that they're telling someone about it. And so if you can't step into their shoes and know exactly what they're thinking, so you can't just be like, oh, you won't do it. like. Telling them, like, oh, don't be stupid. You don't have any reason to feel that way. You Like, that kind of goes with what I was saying. Like, you don't know what they're thinking. They, You can't disqualify the things that they're thinking or feeling because you're not in their shoes. Another thing you should avoid would be guilt-tripping comments. This would look like saying, oh, you're bringing everyone down or you're too happy or too successful to be depressed. I know when... I first got diagnosed with anxiety. Someone made the comment and they're they're like, well, how could you have anxiety? Because you've always done really well in school and all this. And that doesn't always, like, yes, some people with depression and anxiety will do worse in school, but not everyone has the same symptoms. And so if you're just saying like, oh, they have to have all of these or they have to have this certain lifestyle or as mentioned before, like socioeconomic status, that it's not related to depression or suicide. So blowing them off as like, oh, you can't feel this way is not necessarily helpful. Uh, telling them that they're wasting their life being sad or that other people have it uh, worse so that they shouldn't feel that way. In the same sense, a lot of people have it better. So saying that like, oh, people have it worse isn't a helpful comment really. Saying like, oh, stop thinking about it or just get over it kind of goes with the telling them that they're overreacting uh, or telling them that they're too sensitive. Uh, another one, this is what pretty much Tony told me. It's like, you withdrew from your friends and family. Obviously, you don't want to be around us, so this is your fault. As if, like, I chose to be that depressed and I didn't. And telling them this is another thing I was told by Tony and a few of our other friends. It's like, nothing we do makes you happy. So like, oh, you're so ungrateful or like, we shouldn't even try to make you happy because it never works. Because then it just feels like you're blaming them and you shouldn't, you should never throw blame on someone for feeling the way that they do. In the same sense, like we put so much energy into you and all you do is feel sorry for yourself. I know when I was in college and I was trying to reach help, uh, reach out, kind of noticed like after a while, like people weren't being as supportive as they used to and I like asked and they were like well I just feel like every single time we talk to you and try to help nothing changes so I don't even know why we try anymore and I was like well what obviously if I keep going to you it is helping and so if you think like you're putting so much energy into it and they're not getting better that you should just give up that's not really the case if they keep coming back to you that means they they trust you it just might not improve very quickly and so I think some people Kind of confuse slow improvement with no improvement at all. And uh, the next thing is seemingly seemingly harmless things people say that make uh, people with depression feel worse. This one example would be everything happens for a reason because this makes them feel as if they deserve to feel the way that they do. 
Uh, what doesn't kill you makes you too stronger. I did mention that before. Uh, many people have suffered for years and it's only gotten worse and they can feel guilty for regressing instead of progressing. Everything gets better with time. Symptoms can uh, intensify over time and also a lot of times with if you don't get the treatment or the therapy to deal with some of the obstacles that you're facing, with time it just goes into your subconscious and it kind of alters the way that you handle relationships and friendships and just daily things. So it doesn't necessarily get better with time, it just changes over time. Telling them like, oh, I've been there too. Often people confuse depression with sadness or having a bad streak when depression is much more complex and chronic. And uh, lastly, the next comment would be, oh, you should get out more. Or not, that's not really a terrible thing to say, but to, to pressure them to go out when they're not emotionally ready or to make them face feelings that they're unwelcome is not always the best option. So it's always better to invite but not pressure someone who is depressed to go out. And so keeping those options open for them is really helpful and beneficial. And so I encourage like inviting them along, but don't pressure them. Or if they don't go several times, don't just give up or like, well, you never go out anyways. Instead, there's like alternatives that you can say to them, like saying you're so strong for still being here and like recognize the fact that they are struggling and they're trying their best to still fight it and stay where stay alive and stay with everyone and to improve or tell them that we'll get through this together I'm not leaving your side or telling them that they're not a burden uh checking in on them regularly even if you say something that seems harmless and they can kind of read it a different way I think a lot of people when people would say it to me I still recognize that they were trying so that didn't so don't not help someone because you're afraid you're going to say the wrong thing because as long as you're making the effort they still recognize that there's just a few things like if you think you're about to say this and you're like well is there a better way that I could say it to be a little more supporting or so that it can't be read wrong that's just some of the things that I'm going over right now telling them like I know it's been hard to see past this moment but I'm going to stay here until you can and just giving them that support system is a great thing to tell them. It's okay if you can't see a future you want to live in. We'll help create one together. That's kind of cute, but <laughs> it's like just mostly you just have to let them know that you still support them. And that's the best things that you can say or like alternatives you can say. How to help someone who is suffering from the depression or suicidal thoughts is to listen empathetically. It's important for someone who's suicidal to feel heard. Ask questions about their what they are saying to you to make sure to make them feel like you are in you are listening and engaging in the conversation, and it also can help you understand what they're going through a little more. Um, help them with daily tasks if possible. When you're suffering from depression, it can be difficult to complete simple daily tasks or to have the motivation to get up in the morning. So even the smallest gestures can go a long way to help make the day feel a little less overwhelming for them. Uh, remind them how much you care and about, like, remind them how much you care about them and reassure them that they are not a burden. Remind them of their positive traits and accomplishments. Continue to invite them places even if they are withdrawn, but don't pressure them to go, as I mentioned before. 
inviting them can help them fight the thoughts that they are unwanted or other negative thoughts and reassure them that they are not alone. And it's also an opportunity to check in. Uh, being present, company can help can help someone who feels less alone. Like if you're inviting them, sometimes just hanging out with just one-on-one is a lot easier to bear than throwing them in a situation with dozens of people. So just having them being in their company can be really beneficial. Uh, be available to have conversations so that they can work through the emotional traumas that they are going through or any of the emotions that they're feeling at the moment. Lastly, if, uh, if you're suffering from those thoughts, seeking professional help or finding people that you can support or have that support system is extremely beneficial. I know when I was in college and I started having like the same thoughts that I had before I started thinking about suicide, I started going to the counseling and we worked out a plan. And in that plan, though, you could probably research. There's several different versions of this plan. So I don't, I know like one of them is if I'm feeling down, who are the people that I know I can reach out and talk to? Or if I am in an emergency where like, where are the contacts that I can get a hold of, which would be a parent, hospitals, or medical help centers. And they also identifying some of the triggers and working through a lot of those thoughts and having like this plan for when you feel as if you're thinking about death or in a really bad position, what you can do to help yourself get out of it. Uh, listing off things that calm your stress or can like help relieve a little bit of stress. I know like I had listed going to Eucharistic adoration kind of helps me sort through a lot of the things that I'm thinking about, which is pretty much uh, the Eucharist is out in the front of the church and you just pray there. And it's always helped me to do that because uh, if I do the meditation, I just somehow like get alone with my thoughts and I just start bashing myself instead. But when I'm in a church and you're in prayer, I feel like I can't bash myself because of the people that I'm in the presence with. I just, it kind of stops me from doing that. So that's one of the things that I had listed. But meditations or going on walks, getting active, exercise, that's like some of the things that you can do to relieve that stress and get out of it. And so just kind of looking up like alternative plans for uh, suicidal thoughts and seeking medical help is probably the most beneficial thing that you can do. Another thing that I did because of the serenity prayer is that I would sort through things that I could change and what I could not so that I knew like the things that I needed to come to terms with and upset, like accept and the things that I can do, even if they're like really small things to help make my situation a little better or easier to do. Uh, if I had stresses that would trigger it, breaking them down into like smaller lists so that the tasks seem a little more bearable, that was a little more helpful with me. Like even with depression, some people can't take as many showers. Like I know I get behind on my showers, which is, I feel bad because it's like gross, but it's really common. And then like making the bed, cleaning certain things around the house, that's a those are a lot of things that people get really behind on when they hit like depressive episodes. And so making like a list where you include just like making your bed or cleaning like one spot of the house that can really help you break the tasks down into more chewable pieces.
if you have any ideas of what you did to help uh, you get through, even if even if it wasn't suicide and it was just depression or anxiety, uh, please email it to moral of the story podcast 2021 at gmail.com so that I can do a listener story episode. I do have the Patreon up and running, which is a form that you can not, it's a form of donations to help keep this podcast running and allow me to do more things with that engage the listeners or to gain a bigger audience to kind of spread awareness for the emotional, for uh, mental health. Uh, the Patreon is uh, www.patreon.com slash moral of the story podcast, which I will I will have the Patreon in the website, which I would hope that by the time that this is released, I can get a few of those articles put up on the website. And on each article, I have where you can listen and the Patreon and a few of the other websites that uh, or related to the podcast on the Patreon, I do have three tiers of for donations. There's the bronze donation, which is three dollars a month, and then the silver, which is five dollars a month, and the gold, which is ten. After three months, uh, the silver and gold members will get an exclusive sticker, which I believe it's every th- three months you'll get like something small, and I will post a picture of the sticker on our Instagram when this is released. The Patreon I should have up on the Instagram as well. It is in the link for, well, it's in the bio of each episode. And the website is also on our Instagram. Our Instagram is moralofthestory.podcast. And that's our main form of communication. And the Twitter is moral underscore podcast i said in the previous episodes that it was moral underscore pod that's not right so i'm a i'm a little bit of a mess there and uh lastly the suicide hotline is 800-273-8255 to wrap things up today's quote is the serenity prayer which i i recited it earlier in this episode but i found out a few years later that there is a second verse So the full prayer is, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as a pathway to peace, taking, as Jesus did, the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. And that's the moral of the story. Thank you for listening, and I hope you tune in next time.